uh, Mara and I would like to know what's wrong with the front row. Like, yes, this is the splash zone. Remember at SeaWorld, the splash zone? That's what this is. That's gross, is what it sounds like. Yeah, hey, welcome. So on that, welcome to Regen. My name's Kyle, and uh, I get to be the pastor here, and I'm doing announcements, which means it might take like seven years. So let me think about this. Um, At Regen, our mission, what's that? If Zach and I do them, that'll be the whole hour. So I'll see, let me see if I can do this. Um, uh, My name's Kyle. I get to be the pastor here, and I'm super glad you're here with us. Um, Our mission at Regen is to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so our prayer this morning is that wherever you find yourself, there would be kind of a light bulb moment uh, in the midst of wherever you're at. So some of you are stuck at a brick wall. Some of you have had this series of speed bumps that make you wonder what's going on in your life. And in all of that, I pray that you'd see Jesus uh, in the midst of that. So two things that I want to tell you about, or three things. Um, We love being a generous community. And so uh, if you pull out your phone and check in on Facebook, we will generate on your behalf a donation to Bella Women's Center, which is just an organization in our community that we absolutely love. Um, And then the other thing is that today is Cinco de Mayo, uh, dwarfed only by May the 4th, May the 4th Star Wars Day, yesterday, Star Wars Day, uh, Cinco de Mayo, other holidays in May, Um, Mother's Day, right? So priorities, right? Um, So in honor of that, we're having a feast tonight. Uh, A feast is when we just go to somebody's house and eat food. That's all we do as a community. And I think my information is printed in a program so please don't distribute that to salespeople, uh, and instead just come bring a side dish or a drink to share. Uh, that's at somebody with a program. Tell me what time. 5.30, I think. 5.30. 5.30 at my house. So I'll figure it out by the time you get there. But 5.30 at my place tonight. Uh, we'll be having tacos and hanging out. The backyard is uh, runaroundable. So we're excited about that too. Um, I think that's all I'm going to tell you. So I am going to ask Zach Byler to come and pray for the offering. And... Uh, We'll go from there. So I don't have a mic for you. That's now. There we go. I'm going to pass these around. So if you guys are given today, uh, you guys can use those little envelopes that were in the program, or you can go to uh, myregen.org and go to the giving thing there and, and use that. So if you would, uh, just bow your heads and just pray with me here. Father, thank you for another uh, beautiful day with you and uh, this church family. Um, Lord, I just ask that that your spirit does spring up inside of us and just kind of pull us out of um, or away from the brick wall and over these speed bumps. And if you're trying to show us something, Lord, then then just show us in a way that, that, that you really can, um, in, in a way that's filled with truth that we have to recognize and that you can help us through um, and with the love that you're able to do that with. And Lord, I just ask that, that we're able to display that same truth and that same love to those of us around us um, so that we can be your arms and be your hands and be your feet and carry your message to them as well. So, Lord, I just ask that you bless this offering so that we can continue to do that as a church as we expand um, into the, the hearts and the homes of, of the people that we love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Lord, we're here today to offer you um, everything that we have to offer you, which is just ourselves. That's all we have to give you is us. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that um, we ask that you would share with us the compassion and affection um, and kindness that you look on us with as we bring you our failures and our brokenness and our stuckness and our disinterest, Jesus, you look at us with such compassion and invite us uh, to yourself. And so we're just here this morning to hear from you and to be with you. And so uh, help us as we create space in our hearts for that. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, oh, kids are going back first. Second, um, I'm like dying. So can we, unless I'm trying this natural deodorant that we're probably pressing the limits of. Um, and then in just the best segue ever, um, feel really strongly, um, after worship, if Art and Pam and Randy and Jairus, um, can help me, can help um, with some response time after, like during communion or after. Um, feel strongly that maybe there's somebody with like a physical thing that needs to be prayed for today or like an emotional thing that needs to be prayed for today, which is about as broad as it gets, right? But if that, right, so everybody's like, everybody, right? Um, but you, I just think that there's people who know what that is. Um, and so maybe if the you guys could position yourselves and pray for people. Is that okay? I thought I'd say that now so that I'm not like yanking you out of a moment. Um, First Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter two. Go ahead and gra- like Google it. Um, pull out that Bible underneath you. First Thessalonians two. And uh, so we're in the series. Just press play. Press play. And the context of this is ridiculously simple. The context is we want to live like Jesus lives. We want to live like Jesus lives. We want to wrap our lives around Jesus. I wake up in the morning, I try to parent, I try to father, I try to pastor like Jesus would pastor. And so that means wrapping my life around the three priorities of Jesus, about the way that he lived his life. Jesus lives his life in a shape with three priorities, up, his relationship to the Father in, his relationship to his spiritual family, and out, his mission of forgiveness and freedom. And and what we're trying to do as a church and what I'm trying to call you to do as someone who wants to follow Jesus is to turn that triangle on its side. Because as American Christians, as Midwestern Christians, up and in come very easy and we like to outsource the out. Let's pay people to get this done. But for us to be authentic followers of Jesus means for us, means for us to turn that triangle on its side and make out, participating with Jesus and making all things new, proclaiming a message of freedom and forgiveness, it means making out what we would call the sharp end of the spear. It means making it the first bite of pizza is what I see when I see that. Um, I'm hungry by this point in the morning. Um, it means pressing play instead of living on pause. 
Now, when we start talking about evangelism, when we start talking about sharing our faith, what comes to mind are images like these. Um, Someone yelling, people protesting. Some of you close to the screens notice like a blank white box over a sign. It's because it was not appropriate to be seen in church. But if you remember what your what middle school boys like to carve into bathroom doors and desks at school, you probably know what it is. These are the images that comes to mind. And, and it occurred to me this week that evangelism, sharing our faith, pressing into that out, is not only a gesture, it is also a posture. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write those two words down. Gesture and posture. Because actually, most of following Jesus is a posture and a gesture. Worship is a gesture that we just did. We sing. Some of us raise our hands like the kooky people that we are. Um, But it's also a posture. Worship is a lifelong posture. Prayer is a gesture. It is also a posture. Generosity is a gesture, like the buckets go by, but it is also a posture of living, of arranging our lives around giving away more not less. And so too is sharing our faith and pressing into that out. It is both a gesture and a posture. Now last week we looked at that gesture and I'll bring it back again. Evidently last week, the Sunday after Easter was national nobody come to church Sunday. I just found that out as did the like other like 30 of us last week. So who get extra points in heaven for being here. And uh, um, we talked about you and gossiped about you and and posted mean things on Twitter. Um, it's a, it's a gesture, but it's also a posture. It is positioning ourselves in such a way in our relationships that we're ready to bring the good news of the kingdom when, when, when we are called upon to do it. And it is not yelling. It is not holding up signs with male genitalia on them, as this person is doing at a Christian protest. I don't understand the connection. Uh, it is more than that. It is harder than that. How many times in my lifetime and in yours have Christian leaders called us to boycott a store or a movie. And Hollywood and the American capitalist market seem to be doing just fine without us. What I'm here to tell you today is that we are not here to boycott or yell or the millennial fear, cram truth down someone's throats. Because the image that comes to mind for the biblical authors, the biblical imagination, the image that comes to mind when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about sharing our faith, is not yelling. It is this. It is parenting. It is spiritual parenting. If you have a Bible, go with me to 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says this. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version today because I, I like how it articulates some things. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5 says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First Thessalonians is Paul's earliest letter, most likely. And in it, we're getting a glimpse of how Paul, as a missionary disciple, does what he is called to do. Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. This is Paul wrapping his life around the up and and out lifestyle of Jesus, describing that. So we want to do that. Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Let's follow Paul and follow Jesus into this pressing play, into the work of becoming spiritual parents, posturing ourselves as missionary disciples who are also spiritual parents. What I want to do this morning is just walk through this text and get some glimpses of what it looks like to be spiritual parents. What it looks like to be spiritual parents. Because, in, Dan, can you go back to the triangle for a second for me? In that up, in and out, in that upward dimension, we are sons and daughters of God. He is our Father. A lot of us behave like slaves and orphans. If I have to, I have to please Him, I have to do what He says but we are ultimately sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters in that inward dynamic, though we often act more like cousins, don't we? I'd like to see you for an hour a week and maybe an hour at Kyle and Steph's house, but please don't get in my business. That's inconvenient for me. Out, we're, we're, we're mothers and fathers. We're mothers and fathers. And I'll show you what that looks like as we go on. But Paul begins in, uh, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says... You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And if you have a Bible and it's yours, I would encourage you to highlight or underline, we had boldness in our God. Where does Paul locate his boldness in God? And the reason that this is important is because when we start talking about pressing into ministry, pressing into that outward dimension, making at the sharp end of our spear, pressing play, when we do that, we begin to evaluate ourselves in a mental mirror and see everything that we're lacking. I'm not smart enough. I'm not extroverted enough. I'm not trained enough. I'm not like Paul. I'm not like Kyle. I'm not like the smart people in our community. Let's hire that out and let them do it. Your, your boldness does not come from the strength of your personality. It does not come from you. It does not come from your intellect. It comes from God. This is vitally important because we look at ourselves and disqualify ourselves from ever participating in the work of the kingdom because I'm not blank enough. But what Paul says is that the gospel, this, that this good news about God, this good news about Christ is the power of God at work. That's why Paul can be bold coming out of a city like Philippi where he was basically thrown under a bus. Paul comes like kind of dragging himself on all fours into Thessalonica, having barely escaped with his life. And Paul says, my boldness was not in me. My boldness comes from God, who in the good news 
is at work. Your boldness and your ability does not come from you. Your boldness and your ability does not come from you. Paul unpacks this further in verses 3 through 6. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Underline verse 4 if you're dealing with your own Bible. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul's assertion, I was approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. And this is not a, oh, good for you, Paul, I'm glad for you, but here's me living my life. No, the minute you said yes to Jesus, you were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. You were not entrusted with money to pay the church to pay somebody who's entrusted with the gospel. You yourself are entrusted with the gospel. Jill Briscoe and her husband have done ministry in England for a long time, and uh, Jill is in her late 70s or early 80s, still preaching actively, and she'll tell the story about people coming and asking her, Jill, when did you receive your call in the ministry? And she says with this wizened, you know, British senior citizen accent that I'm a 30-year-old man and can't even try to duplicate, says, I received my call to ministry the very minute I said yes to Jesus. It's not like here, come into this club and enjoy the, the, the blessings of up and the benefits of in and let other people handle the out. It's about me as I'm living doing these things. And it's, and by the way, here's what has not approved Kyle to be entrusted with the gospel, not Moody Bible Institute, nor Wheaton College Graduate School, nor United Theological Seminary. The very minute I said yes to Jesus, I was approved by God. And so were you. The reason Kyle is working in full-time ministry is because Jesus just has a lot of work that he needs to do with me that he just gets done in 40 to 50, 60 hours a week. Okay, everybody else, it seems like he can kind of manage with other jobs. But for me, he was like, that's what full-time ministry is, is you're a hot mess. Why don't you just come work for me (laughs) full-time? The other good news about this, by the way, is as much as I love you and as much as I am willing to receive criticism and feedback and next best ideas, my approval does not come from you. It's remarkably freeing. You have been approved by God, and there is nothing that you can do about it. You cannot make him love you more, make him love you less. There is nothing that will make God say, approval revoked. In fact, Paul says, the calling and blessings of God are irrevocable. You've been approved by God for service, to press into being entrusted with the gospel And I think it's really important uh, because this is something like if you've been in church and you're over 50, you've heard a million times, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who haven't heard this idea that, um, and you might be over 50 and have never heard it, that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. So you think, I'm not qualified to do this, God can't use me. God does not call the qualified. In fact, look at what Jesus does. What Jesus does, here's how we usually like to hire or to find people, or to pick people. We look for a minimal level of character and a massive level of competency, and Jesus flips that. Jesus says, you're totally incompetent, cool, but I see a long-term trajectory for a lot of character. I want to use you. Last week, he picked fishermen. He did not pick scholars. 
He did not pick professional speakers. He did not pick debaters. He picked fishermen. A low level of competency, a high level of character. What Jesus wants is not for you to kind of get your crap together and to grow and to attain a certain level of competency and then go. He wants you to develop your character and then let him take care of the competency. And that's exactly what Paul does. And what he describes here in 1 Thessalonians 2 is aligning his character with his calling. It's not... I've got this character, let me go find something to do with it. He aligns his character with his calling. What does that look like in these verses? He says, we speak not to please people and not to receive glory from people. After church today, you'll say, Kyle, that was a really good sermon. I'll say, thank you, but I do not do that to please you. I do not do it for your glory. And I think... What holds us back from speaking truth a lot of times is we're afraid of pleasing. We're, we're afraid that we can't please people. If I, if I speak what I know to be true, I won't please people. I won't receive glory from people, so I'm going to hold back. That's not aligning. It, that's, not, that's not licensed, by the way, to be like a giant jerk face. Um, the gospel is already offensive enough. You don't need to add offense to it to really make it work. But we do not speak to please people. He says we speak, and he lists some interesting things. He says we, we speak without error, without impurity, without deceit, without flattery, without greed. What do these things mean? Well, first of all, without error means there is value to knowing truth and what truth sounds like. There is value to knowledge. There is value to study. Because why? The truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. There's value to knowing truth. He says, so he lays aside error. He lays aside impurity. Why? Because from a pure spring flows pure water. From a pure spring flows pure water. Deceit means being absolutely honest when asked. Um, way back years ago when, when Zach was beginning to kind of have this awakening, God was doing something in his life. He's at, he and Jenna are at our house. And he looks at me and he says, but surely Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. I think I've told you the story before. I remember thinking at the time, well, there goes this friendship. Never going to see these people again. Um, I said, listen, for me to live the way I live, as I study scripture, as I see how Jesus operates, Jesus seems to operate with this sense that he is the only way to the Father. So yeah, Jesus is really the only way. Deceit in that moment would have looked like letting the pitch fly by or softening the harder parts of the gospel. See? But Paul says, I've laid aside deceit. He says, I've laid aside flattery. Flattery and deceit are two, things, two sides of the same coin, right? Deceit is a straight-out lie. Flattery is a white lie. Do I look good in these pants, you know? Thank you. I'm glad you think that because they're the same jeans I wore all the way in, all way in Fort Wayne. So these need a, a scrub-a-dub-dub. Greed, not for selfish gain. Now, Paul could have, he makes this case. I could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He doesn't let them pay him. Um, but what does that look like for ordinary people? I mean, I think for us, it's kind of how like people like to share their faith and add a notch to their belt and move on. Man, do people see that coming from a mile away. I'm just racking up a list of people that I've saved. Paul says, we speak to please God who tests our heart. That should be absolutely terrifying and overwhelmingly comforting. 
It should be comforting because I don't need any of you to test my heart. But the one person who does test my heart knows everything about me, even the things I don't know about myself. We all have motivations that we think are pure, but there's like stealth expectations and stealth drives that we don't see coming. Jesus sees that too. In fact, twice in this text does Paul say, twice in this text does he say God is witness. Another place that Paul talks about aligning character with his calling that I didn't notice until this morning was when Paul says in verse 10, you are witnesses in God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. Can I tell you the problem? That's like a trifecta that's impossible to hit. Holy and righteous and blameless? Here's the deal. I know a lot of holy and righteous people that are certainly not blameless. They're self-important. They're condescending. They're rude. I know a lot of blameless people who are neither holy nor righteous. They're a great guy. I don't have a bad thing to say about them. But holy and righteous and blameless. Paul aligns character with calling to position himself and posture himself as not a street preacher, nor as someone who rams his beliefs down someone's throat, but as a spiritual parent. Paul says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Notice that Paul uses this parenting language to describe evangelism. He doesn't say, I'm the guy outside the abortion clinic. I'm the guy outside the Supreme Court holding the signs that says, repent or you're going to hell. Instead, he says, I was gentle. I was affectionately desirous. Other translations render that so flat. They say, I loved you so much. Listen, I've written all of you cards and like texts that I love you so much. Listen, Paul says, I was affectionately desirous. I mean, that speaks of something down deep in his gut. He said, you'd become so dear to me. That's the posture he has when he's talking about evangelism. That's the talk. That's the posture he has when he's talking about being a missionary disciple. That's the posture your friends and neighbors and family members are desperately waiting for. That's it right there. What's interesting about Paul is Paul is using... Greco-Roman language to make sense to Greco-Roman culture. So you remember last week, it was Jesus, the rabbi, calling the disciples and apprentices. That's a very Jewish way of thinking about the world. Paul is now in Thessalonica. He's writing to Greco-Romans who have a totally different culture. And so he talks about the same principle in different language. Paul says, I've become all things to all people that by some means I might win some. Paul, instead of talking to Greco-Romans about rabbi disciples, they don't know what that means, he uses language of spiritual parenting, of mentoring, of father-child. So for example, in Galatians 4.19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Spiritual parenting is gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I'm not writing to embarrass you or shame you, but to correct you as the children I love. For although you could have countless babysitters in Christ telling you what you're doing wrong, you don't have many fathers who correct you in love, but I'm a true father to you. For I became your father when I gave you the gospel and brought you into union with Jesus. I became your father. This is why spiritual parenting which is what we're called to, is what we don't do. And what we do do, he said do-do, haha, is a counterfeit, counterfeit version. Because I'll tell you what, anybody can stand on a street corner and yell at passerby. 
absolutely anybody can hold up a sign. Absolutely anybody can not go see a movie. Absolutely anybody can put out an inspirational verse on their, on their Instagram feed. It is much harder, it is much harder to be a spiritual parent. It is much harder to approach the people in your life with gentleness, to open your life to them. Paul takes a posture of nurturing and care. He says he was affectionately desirous of them, that he loved them so much that he wanted to give them his own self. Not just the gospel, not just, hey, I've got, bad evangelism says you're wrong, I'm right, and I would love to tell you about it. Apologetics at its worst says, let me study all the arguments so I can make a fool out of you when you say something stupid. But spiritual parenting says, you are so dear to me and I love you so much that I just want to be, I want you to be near me. And Paul goes so far as to describe himself as a nursing mother. Uh, we have learned about what this verse means in our family in the last three months. Um, because, because here's the deal. Jack won't take a bottle yet. Um, and so all of our life is kind of in these two-hour increments, right? Maybe two and a half if we're lucky, often less, because he's like growing. Like, like he's, my mom's calling him four because he's just huge. Um, and so a few weeks ago, somebody uh, from Grace Campus came and watched Jack and said, why don't you guys go on a lunch date? So we time it, they come over, Steph finishes feeding Jack, and we like throw him at our friend, and we're like, go, go, go. Like, we get to the car, I'm like flying down 82 so we can go to lunch. Like, this, we, they sit down, they're like, hey, how are you? Would you like? I'm like, this is what I want to eat right here. And it takes forever to get our food. And so we're like, okay, you know, and then, so we eat our food, and it's really good, and I eat fast anyway, so it's like, okay, and then um, we're like, okay, we're ready to cash out, and like 45 minutes later, it feels like she comes wandering back with our check, and we pay it, and we go out to the car, and we're like, oh, maybe that actually went pretty fast, because uh, we have no sense of time anymore. Um, maybe that went really fast, so we look down at our, like, her phone, where she's tracking all this, and she goes, oh my gosh, Jack has eat like, ate an hour and 50 minutes ago, so it's like, we've got it, like, you know, now we're, like, running back to the car and driving home, and we get in the door, and he had just started, like, screaming his head off to the person that was watching him. Um, I have learned that nursing is overwhelmingly inconvenient, and I'm not even doing it. Just like along for the ride and stuck in this slow, like, I, man, parenting, right? You know, and, but here's the other thing about it. It is overwhelmingly intimate, isn't it? Like Jack and Steph share this connection of like eye contact because she's feeding him and she's looking, I mean, their brains are like, our brains are wired for like just that distance at this age. God made us that way. So his like neural pathways are just lighting up like a fireworks as this is happening. And he's like holding her finger and, and sometimes he like pulls off and just like talks to her. This is a new thing he's doing. He just, like his father, has something to say real fast. And there's this intimacy and this inconvenience that Paul says is exactly what spiritual parenting is. exactly what spiritual parenting is. So he goes on to say in verse 9, you remember brothers our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul is a smart guy. He was a tent maker. 
So whatever city he went to, he could just drop down, and he had a good that had universal demand. It was a commodity. I just learned the word, that what the word commodity means, so I thought I'd throw it out there for you. And so he's making tents during the day so that he's not taking money from these people, but then that means at night he's staying up late proclaiming the gospel and spiritual parenting and having these conversations with people. He calls it toil. He says it was night and day. Talk about new parents, night and day. There, I remember Zach said to me when we shortly before Jack was born, he said, the thing I learned about Zoe a couple months in was like, there's no off button, right? There is no like, okay, you sit over here and I'm going to do my life. It's like, oh, I'm going to try to fill the dishwasher one-handed now while you're puking on me. Cool. And I love, and by the way, I, I like, I am living my dream right now. Um, and it gives me such a glimpse into what it means for us to spiritually parent people never being off, being intimate, being inconvenienced, giving them access to my life, aligning my character with my calling. So, so what are some ways, Paul, by the way, I love that Paul says, as a father, we exhorted and encouraged and charged. What I have found as I spiritually parent people, what you'll find is that sometimes they need an encouragement and sometimes they need an exhortation. Exhortation is like encouragement with a little bit more teeth. And sometimes a charge is like, no, this is just what you need to do, right? Parenting is the same way. Oh, like, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you strongly to do this, or you're, you're just going to do it, right? Spiritual parenting and practice. I want to give you some ideas of how to posture yourself. I want to look at the gesture, and then we're out of here. So what is spiritual parenting and practice? How do we posture ourselves to spiritually parent? First, it's about access to life. It's about opening your home. It's about your phone blowing up. It's about being inconvenienced. It's about having people live with you, having people over for dinner. Uh, people do not want to come with you to church. They do not care about our church. They, they just, they don't. Why would they? Church is what you do for an hour on Sunday morning for reasons they cannot understand. What they do want to know is you, and they do want to know your life, and then they will be interested in your church. And so, by the way, some of this, this is like a high challenge message. And so some of you at the end of it are going to be like, I am ready to like lay down my life and spiritually parent, teach me how, let's go. Um, some of you will be like, oh boy. Um, so can I encourage you, like, if you just want to do one simple thing this week, it would simply be, is there a person in your life that is far from Jesus that you can have over for dinner? How do you just give access to your life to somebody that's far from Jesus, that's in your circle, one of your people of peace, maybe? It means opening our home. I was a part-time youth pastor, um, and I found out that my students didn't know that, I, well, here's the thing, my phone rang full-time, even though I was being paid part-time, right? So I couldn't tell a student in the midst of like a hormonal, emotional crisis, like, I'm off today, I'll text you back tomorrow, right? That's spiritual parenting. That's access to life. The second one is focusing on a person's heart, not their behavior. Focusing on a person's heart, not their behavior. Let me show you what this looks like. Um, after, so I'll, I'll be doing like a meeting with a family for a funeral. Or I'll be in a social event, someone will introduce me, and then like 10 minutes into the conversation, they find out I'm a pastor. And that whole 10 minutes, they've been cussing. And it just, like this look of horror over washes over them and suddenly they switch to christian swears like shoot dang it like 
or they'll like, dang it, right? Like they'll catch themselves. Um, and, and here's the thing. I don't say when they do that, thank you for changing your language, you wicked person. <laughs> um, at times, I didn't say this last campus, but it's true. Sometimes I'll swear in the conversation just to let everybody know we're okay. Uh, I'm like, take it down a notch. Um, um, but I don't, the, here's what is not, the biggest issue in their life is not their language. The biggest issue in their life isn't, their greed, it isn't their sexual promiscuity. I mean, almost, here's what's unthinkable to colleagues in ministry of mine. Almost every wedding I do is for somebody that's been living together before they got married. And like a generation ago, it'd be like, no, you can't. And my thing is like, well, they want to get married, so let's just pick up with that and see if we can point them to Jesus in the process. Because the issue, biggest issue in their life isn't that they're living together. The biggest issue in their life is their unbelief. By the way, this is super important with your biological children. The biggest issue in their life isn't their behavior. Their biggest issue in their life is their unbelief. And if you watch how Jesus does ministry, like with the woman at the well in John 4, he talks way more about her heart and her belief, and then way later in the conversation says, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, oh, that's right, because you've been divorced like a whole bunch of times, and you're living with a guy. He doesn't start with, the woman comes up to him the well and says, oh, hey, you, divorced woman, and promiscuous, you, 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 come fix your life, he talks about her unbelief before he talks about her behavior. So keep your eye on the prize, which is the third thing is when we are spiritual parenting, I remember I had a mentor in um, graduate school who said um, about, her ch about raising kids, she said, we're not raising our kids to be the age they are, we're raising them to be 40. Um, and I think that's true of spiritual parenting as well. Like, I'm not raising, like, the spiritual kids that I have to, like, follow Jesus in this moment. I'm trying to help them follow Jesus for the lifelong. And that means if they haven't stepped across the line of faith yet, I'm not attacking every nicky-nacky behavior thing. I'm trying to position myself in the long haul to have the one most crucial conversation with them, which is, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? Right? So let the swearing kind of wash over you. Let the who they're dating wash over you, and you, you hold all the cards back until you have a really good hand to play, which is, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. And when we have that conversation, how do we have it? This gets back to the idea of the gesture. So does everybody have one of these guys or some, something to write on? Does anybody not have one of these and need them? Look at you. Thanks, thanks, Jairus, for being an amazing hander-outer of things and other things. Um, so you're having, so you've played the long game. How do, I, how do I talk about the gospel? Because we talked about this last week. It can't just be preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. At some point or another, you're going to have to say something. So when you have to say something, what do you say? So you're talking to one of your spiritual kids, and they're like, man, the world is a super broken place. The world just sucks. And you're like, you know what, you're right. The world is a super broken place. Our world is marked by sickness and suffering and sadness, isn't it? There's those three lines under that top middle circle. Sickness, suffering, and sadness. But you know what? That's not the way that God made it. God didn't make it this way. In fact, when God made the world, it was beautiful. It was marked by beauty. There were no problems. There were no pain. There were no punishments. 
No problems, no pains, no punishment. Can you think about that? No pain of mind, no pain of body. No problems with people. No punishments for the things that we've done wrong. Well, how did we get from beauty to broken? Well, the reality is that's the word sin. Sin entered the world, and it broke the world. It broke it. It broke the world. And it's not just sin out there. It's not just like what evil people do. It's also something I do. That letter I reminds me, I go my own way. I do. God says do this. I'm like, okay, I, I hear that. I will go over here. All right? What's that? Generosity, but I would like to buy a video game. Thank you. Um, what's that generosity? Nova is right there. So, coffee. I go my own way. So thank goodness there's some good news Despite the fact that sin has wrecked the world, God has created a plan to fix it. He sends his son, Jesus, who says, who is what Scripture calls the firstborn of the dead, and he's offering us a new birth. Have you ever thought about this phrase, new birth? I I think I mentioned this last week. Zach pointed it out to me. Um, There is something so fundamentally wrong with us that we need to be born again. I'm trying to get Zach to explain this. He said, imagine if you showed me Jack for the first time, and I was like, oh, dude, he just needs to be born again. We need to, like, try again. I would have been like, you. Except Zach can kind of kill me, so I would have used my words and then run away. But um, we need to be born again. And so Jesus lives this perfect life. He dies this death that takes all the brokenness, all the sickness and suffering and sadness of the world upon himself. And he offers us new birth. He offers us freedom and forgiveness and a future. Man, there's some stuff in my life I really want to be free from. I really do want to be free from people's approval. I really do want forgiveness for the people that I've wounded, the way I've wounded others in my life. I want a future. I want a future of hope. And the good news is that Jesus is bringing into the world a new birth that gives us all of those things. So how do we experience that good news for ourselves? Well, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And repent doesn't mean let me stand outside and hold this sign out here and get everybody upset at me. It just means to turn away from my way toward Jesus and to follow him, to believe him, to make his life like my life, to integrate those two things. And as I turn away from my life and toward following Jesus, as we all do that together, Jesus is offering the whole world, a way to be restored to that beauty. In a perfect world, his church, his people are a glimpse of that beauty as we love and care and serve for one another. Imperfectly flawed. We get a glimpse of that beauty as we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God and run after the world's social ills. We get glimpses of heaven in ordinary places as we experience that new birth. So you draw this on the back of a napkin, you talk a friend through this, and then it's important to then ask, hey, and by the way, are you ready to receive the new birth today? And there are two terrifying responses. And one is, why, yes, I am. Oh, <laughs> what do I say now, right? Um, you pray with them, you give them an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. The other way is, They say, no, I am not. And you say, why? Why? And they say, well, I just don't know if I could believe that the earth was created in six 24-hour periods. Nowhere does the Bible say that believing that is a prerequisite for entering heaven. Some of them might say, listen, I had this uncle who did this thing to me when I was 17, and I just... And Jesus was also a victim. And he took that brokenness on himself. 
I've just been super wounded by Christians. Same. You don't know my past. That's okay. It's, it's walking people through things. That's the gesture. So you need the gesture in your hand, but you also need to posture yourselves to be ready for it. That's why scripture says always be ready. Always be ready. And what does that look like? It, it looks like this. It looks like, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were so affectionately desirous of you we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd come very dear to us. Uh, here's what I want to invite you to do. We want to be people who hear God and do what he says. We want to live a lifestyle responding to him when he speaks to us. And so on the back of your program, there's this thing that says like, what is God saying? What am I going to do? I just want to give you like a minute this morning to write down how you're going to respond to God. And maybe you don't write it down. You just think about it, whatever. And then um, we'll come up and we'll receive communion. And that's when Art and Pam, well, Art, because oh, Pam's doing kids. Man, I'm just asking so much of her. Pray for people. Teach our kids. Count the people. Um, but Jerison, Randy, and Art will be available to pray. Um, but go ahead and take a minute just to write down what God's inviting you or challenging you into. Lord, even as we're responding to you, we offer up um, just our resistance or maybe the ways that we've failed at this in the past. And instead, Lord Jesus, what we want to do, um, what we want to do is share with you our life. We want to say thank you for the spiritual mothers and fathers that parented us through our stuff. We want to offer ourselves to the people around us in that way. Pray this in Jesus' name. The night when Jesus was betrayed, the text says something interesting. It says that he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it and he gave it. And that's us. We right now are the body of Christ broken, blessed, and given to the world. Given to the world. And so we come to this table just to remind ourselves of that, to massage back into our hearts those truths. And so the way that we receive communion at Regen is simple. If you have a pulse, you're welcome to this table. If you have a pulse, you're welcome to this table. Uh, so that we can be restored and renewed in the grace of Jesus who is broken and blessed and given for us. Um, so here's how you can kind of interact this time. You can come forward, receive communion. You can pray for somebody with somebody. I'm going to actually be in the back to pray um, too. So there'll be kind of like Randy and Jairus and like me and then Art or something like that. Um, and as far as uh, communion goes, let's have Zach. And I'm just going to call people Kathy, if you don't mind, and Jen Hartman and... Uh, Regine Bacher, if you wouldn't mind. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, 
broken, blessed, given to the world. Hmm. Thanks, Jesus, that we get to be part of this thing that you have called us into your own kingdom and glory. Wow. Amen. Amen. Um, The table is open. So if you need prayer this morning, um, we'll keep on playing for a little bit so you can do that, but um, the rest of you are dismissed.